This is part two of the 2015 updated ACLS guidelines, cardiac arrest controversies with Dr. Lori Morrison and Dr. Steve Lynn. And we'll have a special guest appearance by Dr. Scott Weingart in this episode, who's going to give us his two cents on cardiac arrest care. Now, in this part two, we're going to cover post-arrest care after you achieve ROSC. But before we get into the meat of the podcast, I just wanted to let you know that registration for the first ever EM Cases course in Toronto on February 6th, where you'll get a chance to hang out and learn in small groups from your favorite EM Cases guest experts, opens on November 17th. There's only 45 spots available, so be sure to sign up on the 17th. Now on to what we're going to cover in the episode. Once we've achieved ROSC, our job is not over. Good post-arrest care involves maintaining blood pressure and cerebral perfusion, adequate sedation, cooling and preventing hyperthermia, considering antiarrhythmic medications, optimization of tissue oxygen delivery while avoiding hyperoxia, getting patients to PCI who need it, and looking for and treating the underlying cause. I will get Dr. Lin and Dr. Morrison's opinion on the new simplified approach to diagnosing the underlying cause of PEA arrest, which is pretty cool. We'll also discuss when it's time to terminate resuscitation or call the code, as well as some fascinating research on gender differences in cardiac arrest care. These co-authors of the guidelines will also give us their vision of the future of cardiac arrest care, and we'll wrap up the episode with the third opinion, so to speak, Dr. Weingart's take on the whole thing. Now, just to reorient you, I'll run through the case that we discussed in part one and continue to discuss in part two. A 67-year-old woman rolls into your resuscitation bay with ongoing chest compressions and bagging. EMS tells you that her husband witnessed her collapsing at home after a family dinner when she complained of chest pain. CPR was started almost immediately by her husband and her daughter called 911. EMS found the patient to be in PEA. CPR was initiated, epi was given twice, and ROSC was achieved for a few minutes. She lost her pulse just as they offloaded her into the ambulance bay of your ED, and it was 22 minutes post-collapse when you get her in the ED. So there's the case, and we're going to start off this post-arrest discussion talking about the value of antiarrhythmics after you've achieved ROSC. And here we go with post-arrest antiarrhythmics. So we've talked about antiarrhythmics during a V-fib arrest. What about antiarrhythmics post-arrest? So let's say we've got return of spontaneous circulation in the 67-year-old woman. We're high-fiving all around. Is there any evidence for using amiodarone, lidocaine, beta blockers, any of the above post-arrest? Is there any evidence that this will improve outcomes? So again, like many things, there's a positive evidence for post-cardiac arrest antiarrhythmics. So more recently, coming out of Seattle, uh, led by Dr. Peter Kudinchuk, he published a paper using lidocaine as a prophylactic antiarrhythmic post-cardiac arrest. That's the only paper that's out there right now, and it's been included in the 2015 guideline update. However, a caveat to that paper is that the paramedics predominantly use lidocaine as their intracardiac arrest antiarrhythmic. So when these patients had a ROSC, they just continued using the same antiarrhythmic post-cardiac arrest. So the study that Dr. Lin's referring to 
is called prophylactic lidocaine for post-resuscitation care of patients with out-of-hospital ventricular fibrillation cardiac arrest, and it's from the Resuscitation Journal in 2013. It was an observational study of about 1,700 patients with witnessed VF or pulseless VTAC, all of whom received lidocaine intra-arrest, who either did or did not receive lidocaine after their first ROSC. And it showed that lidocaine post-arrest was associated with less recurrent arrests. So here's Dr. Lin's bottom line when it comes to antiarrhythmics post-arrest. There is no good evidence for the use of antiarrhythmics, but if you're using lidocaine during your arrest and you get a ROSC back, you can choose to continue using the same antiarrhythmic, such as lidocaine, afterwards. But this is only a single study. Mm -hmm. It's a single study, and it's before and after. And there was tremendous controversy on the task force as to whether or not. And so it's essentially the guidelines, it's worded in a way that says, if you're already using this, you may not need to stop. But if you're not doing it, there's no need to start. Would it be safe to say, forget about antiarrhythmics altogether, let's just simplify this all, and don't use any antiarrhythmics during arrest or post-arrest? Or is if that too much of a simplification? five months, we'll probably finish this trial and get you the real answer. Oh, great. And okay. I would hold on to that because based on two RCTs that we have showing increased ROSC that were not powered for survival to discharge, that's the problem with the two RCTs on amiodarone. They weren't powered for survival, so they don't have a big enough sample size to conclude it. So those two RCTs are all we have, and they suggest amiodarone increases ROSC. Just like similar trials, that's the only reason to use epinephrine is it increases ROSC. That's all we know for both those drugs. So we're reluctant to take them away. When this ALPS trial finishes, we'll have definitive evidence to whether or not to leave it in. I'm on the edge of my seat. Let's go back to our case. Let's say our patient now is in PEA arrest or still in PEA arrest. I want to talk a little bit about the approach to PEA arrest. Last year, an article called A Simplified and Structured Teaching Tool for the Evaluation and Management of Pulses Electrical Activity was published suggesting that we should rethink our approach to PEA entirely. That instead of going through the H's and P's, which are very difficult to remember in the heat of a resuscitation, we should use an algorithm where we first ask, is the QRS narrow or wide? And if it's narrow, that'll send us down the path of mechanical right ventricular problems like cardiac tamponade or PE. And using our POCUS, we can narrow that down even further. And if the QRS is wide, the algorithm will send us down the path of metabolic problems like hyperkalemia and sodium channel blocker toxicity, which should trigger us to pull out meds like calcium chloride and sodium bicarb. So it's it's sort of a simpler algorithm that uh, doesn't require us to remember this long list of differential diagnoses. Is this something that the guidelines endorse, first of all? And if they don't, what do you think in terms of how we should be approaching PEA arrest? I love that simplified method. So I'm a big proponent of, of ultrasound, and I think ultrasound can be very helpful at the bedside. So if you see a narrow QRS during a cardiac arrest, you could run down 
reasons why there is decreased outflow from the right side of the heart. Or if you see a wide QRS, you're worried about more metabolic reasons. And I think that's perfect. Having basic training with bedside ultrasound can actually improve your resuscitation skills. And to answer the second question, no, the guidelines have not looked at that study mm-hmm. and it was not included in the guideline update. And I just would caution that every time you reach for a new toy or a new device that's going to be used in cardiac arrest, you have to make sure you are so nimble at its use that you don't affect ongoing chest compressions and the ongoing care of a cardiac arrest patient, regardless of what rhythm it is. So all these add-ons are added on seamlessly without any interruption in chest compressions. And Anton, I would just add that, and if there's enough members on the team to actually do the cardiac arrest, the ultrasonographer has to be almost independent of the jobs and responsibilities around that cardiac arrest team. They have to be able to not only be skilled, but to be independent of the team so that they can slide it in without ever affecting the interruption of the resuscitation. into about 30 minutes of resuscitating this patient, during which time we've achieved ROSC, but then we lost it again. This brings up the question, how long should we run a cardiac arrest? In other words, when should we be thinking about calling the code? So in in hospital cardiac arrest and all pediatric cardiac arrests, whether they occur in or out of hospital, there are no validated decision rules that will guide you. In out-of-hospital cardiac arrest, there's one termination of resuscitation rule only for presumed cardiac or no obvious cause cardiac arrest. And that's what the paramedics apply now. And so you don't see those patients in your ED. They're pronounced dead in the field. And the rule that they use is um, if the patient had a shockable rhythm at any time during the resuscitation, that's potentially viable and that patient you should never give up on. The other rule is if they witnessed the cardiac arrest, like they had chest pain, and they suddenly had a cardiac arrest in front of the provider, you would never give up on that patient. And the other one is if at any time they achieved a ROSC, that's a sign of life, and you shouldn't give up on those. So if any of those three things have occurred in the pre-hospital setting, the medic will not give up. Okay, and Dr. Lin, what about in the ED? So in the ED... The guidelines have not specified a time when to actually stop resuscitating patients. And so the decision is really multifactorial. So depending on the age of the patient, depending on the comorbidities, uh, you have to come, come up with that when you want to stop. There are some values that may be helpful. So if you have end tidal CO2 monitoring on these patients and you have not achieved an end tidal of greater than 10 after 20 minutes of CPR, right? These patients have poor outcomes. So if you're, if you're in that position where the patient has advanced age, has very bad comorbidities, and you've had an entitled CO2 of less than 10 for more than 20 minutes, they have poor prognosis. And then you should start considering ending resuscitation at that point in time. That's if you can be assured the quality of CPR is high. So if you have immediate bedside feedback, you know you're giving the best quality CPR and that end title is less than 10, then it's helpful as one of the contributory factors. 
Okay, my understanding from the guidelines is that they stipulate that you shouldn't rely only on the entitled CO2 to make that decision, but one of the factors. What are some of the other factors? Well, initial rhythm VF uh, or recurrent VF, so recurrent VF particularly in many resuscitation scientists' minds, recurrent VF is begging for a cath lab. So to give up on those patients is 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 wrong in my opinion. Um, but to continue doing CPR and not activating the cath lab and not bringing down cardiology and saying, I think there's a problem here, that's also wrong. So recurrent VF for over a long duration, 10 to 15 minutes, particularly if these patients are arrested in the ED right in front of you, you know what their pathology was. You had a chance to talk to them. You might have known their comorbidity. You might have known what their cardiogram was. If they have a VF arrest in front of you, then you should activate the cath lab. And there are other factors as well that we talked about uh, in previous guidelines, and that's hypothermia. So if the patient remains cold, you can't pronounce them dead until they're warm and dead. That's kind of the old adage. And rescuer fatigue. You can't run a natural cardiac arrest forever. So if there is safety concerns or there is actual fatigue, then these are also components of uh, one to consider stopping resuscitation. Mm -hmm. That brings back the idea of using a machine to do chest compressions. In the case of a hypothermic patient where he might be resuscitating them for a couple of hours, that's when a machine might come in useful. Yeah, exactly. I think I think so too. And it, particularly if, if cardiology comes down and they say, okay, we'll, we'll give it a try, we'll, then they need to be on a Lucas device or some device that'll allow them to do angiography through it. So a quick review here. When it comes to terminating resuscitative efforts in a cardiac arrest patient, the only validated rule is for the adult out-of-hospital cardiac arrest, and it's got three components that dictate not to stop resuscitative efforts. Those are... Number one. If the patient had a shockable rhythm. Number two. If it was a witnessed arrest. Number three. If there was any ROSC after the arrest. In the ED, the decision to terminate resuscitation is multifactorial, and there's no absolute time cutoff. Some of the factors to consider are age comorbidities, and end-tidal CO2 of less than 10 after 20 minutes of high-quality CPR, initial VF or recurrent VF, and remember in that case, Dr. Morrison suggests activating the cath lab right away and using a compression machine if possible. The patient who has hypothermia, remember they're not dead until they're warm and dead. And the last one is rescuer fatigue. So if you don't have a compressor machine around, and you only have one or two people who can do compressions, they're going to tire out after a while. Next, we're going to talk about the timing of giving vasopressors post-arrest, as opposed to giving massive amounts of fluid post-arrest. And then we'll talk about the indications for immediate PCI. We know that there's clear evidence for immediate PCI in patients who present in VF, and also in patients who have a STEMI on their ECG. And it's especially important to advocate for PCI for patients with recurrent VF. But the patients who are not VF, who are not STEMI, it's a little bit murkier what to do with them. Let's hear what Dr. Morrison and Dr. Lin have to say. So with your incredible team and your heroic efforts, you finally managed to get ROSC for more than a few minutes. And the patient now has stable vital signs, is on the ventilator, and seems to be doing pretty well. You talk to the family, and the department's now really backed up. 
you know that post-arrest care is as important as intra-arrest care. So you need to sort out a few things with this patient, like sedation, cooling, vent settings, if you haven't sorted out already with your RT, maintaining cerebral perfusion, etc. You know that optimization of tissue oxygen delivery while avoiding hyperoxia, prevention of hyperthermia, and aggressive search for the underlying cause of the arrest should be your greatest priorities. You also wonder whether you should be on the phone with the interventional cardiologist to transfer this patient for immediate PCI. Let's touch on some of these important questions. Let's start with maintaining blood pressure and cerebral perfusion. There's been some suggestions from opinion leaders in critical care that in addition to crystalloid boluses, we should be starting vasopressors like norepinephrine as soon as we get ROSC. What's your take on this idea of early initiation of vasopressors? Once the patient gets a ROSC back and they seem to be stable to some degree, we're all high-fiving each other and the blood pressure tends to be on the high side because of all the epinephrine that was actually given uh, and now the blood pressure is really high and we tend to forget about this. But once the epinephrine does wear off, patients can become hypotensive and the knee-jerk reaction from most people is to give fluid boluses. But just to remind you that in most cardiac arrests that uh, where myocardial ischemia is the cause, we shouldn't be bolusing these patients too much fluid, causing them to go into heart failure. So once their blood pressure does come down, I think starting vasopressors such as Levofed, aiming for a map of around 65 is probably a good idea. And on top of that, if 65 is not high enough because these patients tend to have high blood pressure to begin with, we always have to check for an organ perfusion to optimize their hemodynamics. So in our case of our 67-year-old woman in whom we've achieved ROSC, the nurse hands you a post-resuscitation ECG, which shows normal sinus rhythm with some T-wave flattening in the anterolateral leads. The blood gas comes back with a pH of 7.1 and a lactate of 9. We know that patients with evidence of STEMI should go directly to the cath lab post-arrest. That's kind of an easy one. What about the patients with ECGs showing a non-STEMI or patients with normal ECGs? Which patients should we be considering for transfer to PCI-capable hospitals after a cardiac arrest? So the new guidelines looked at some papers. Some of them came from Paris and the French group. And uh, others came from the Arizona group. And uh, there's an abstract out from the Rock group as well, all looking at this question of should non-STEMI post-cardiac arrest go for angiography? Should they be investigated more aggressively than we are? And the answer in the new guidelines, the expert opinion after looking at these papers None of them were definitive. None of them were like a level one RCT. But they concluded that patients with STEMI and patients with non-STEMI whose initial rhythm was VF, that those should be all considered for angiography. It does leave us in a quagmire of what to do for the patient who wasn't in VF and doesn't have STEMI, which is the case you're presenting today. And in those patients... It is unclear and there's no guideline to guide about whether they should go for angiography. There, in a, there is a rock paper that looked at troponin levels. And we can see from that observational look at thousands of cases that the higher trope 
associated with a non-STEMI, non-VF cardiac arrest patient who has a high trope, they're more likely to have a PCI amenable lesion and they do better when they're taken for angiography. So they have better outcomes with reperfusion. Well, that's a pearl. And that's a pearl. So uh, that paper is currently under peer review, but it, uh, the, the essence of the key message in that paper is that when you're in this no man's land of not VF, not STEMI, post-arrest, what do I do? Then perhaps a trope can help guide you and it can help encourage the cardiologist to take them to the cath lab. Okay. Now, I just want to clarify here, my understanding from reading the 2015 guidelines was if you deem the patient to be a primary cardiac cause of their arrest, that you should consider sending all of those patients for PCI. That's expert opinion. There isn't a lot of evidence to guide that, and I think we get all get pushback from the PCI guys, the cardiology interventionalists without some good level evidence. And I think there's enough community equipoise. Well, I know there's enough community equipoise to randomize patients because the Arizona group has received a go-ahead to randomize post-arrest patients who do not have STEMI into angio versus no angio. So I, I think with that, if there's insufficient evidence and enough community equipoise, I don't think we as eMERGE docs are going to be able to convince our cardiology colleagues to take this group to the angio suite without better definitive evidence. Okay. I so- only raised the issue of the troponin level because, unfortunately, until that RCT is done, we're still left with a huge bunch of patients post-arrest that don't have a STEMI and don't have VF, and we don't know what to do with them. I see. So I think it's important then to review what the unfavorable factors are for cath. So given that the patients who are non-VFib, non-STEMI, and let's say they have a troponin that's not very elevated, we don't really know what to do with these patients, um, what are some of the factors to take in consideration that might push you to pick up the phone and advocate for the patient for PCI? In other words, what are some of the unfavorable factors uh, for a cath to improve outcomes? And what are some of the favorable factors to make it more likely that the cath is going to help? So the favorable factors in cardiac arrest are the same across the board, not even not as well for cardiac cath, but they're the same for everything. So they're called the Utstein factors. So if the patient has um, an unwitnessed cardiac arrest, didn't have bystander CPR, didn't have an AED used, didn't have VFib as their initial rhythm, didn't have ROSC in the field, all those were associated with poor outcomes. So those patients, it would probably not be in their best interest to go for angiography because it's unlikely they will survive. Yeah, and obviously some of the patients who are of advanced age, such as age over 85 years old, or there are clear non-cardiac causes to their arrest. So if this were a drowning case, if they had a signs of having a stroke, or this was due to uh, illicit drug use, then these patients will not benefit from having a cath themselves. And of course, if you uh, intuitively, if it's a long cardiac arrest where resuscitation went over 30 minutes, or you had a very long time of 
resuscitation before you got ROSC, these patients may not do favorably after a PCI. Okay. What about parameters like lactate and pH? You know, in this case, the patient had a lactate of nine and a pH of 7.1. Mm-hmm. Does that kind of sway you one way or another in terms of whether it's worth calling for PCI? But all these things are so correlated, it's hard to identify which is the key one. But those are a reflection of long downtime. All those things, kidney failure, being severely acidotic and elevated lactate. So all those go with long downtime. So most likely if you didn't get through what Steve said, which was greater than 30 minutes, you're going to have these anyways. So one factor that may tip us one way or another, whether to activate the cath lab for a patient with a non-VF, non-STEMI cardiac arrest, is to look at the troponin. And if it's really high, then we might want to get on the phone and get that patient out of your emergency department to PCI right away, because those patients are more likely to have an amendable lesion and have improved outcomes in one study that's under peer review currently. Some other factors to consider are the Utstein factors. That is, if it's a non-VF arrest, if it was unwitnessed, or there was no ROSC in the field, those patients are much less likely to, those patients are much less, those patients are much less, those patients are much, those patients are much less likely to get benefit from PCI. Other things to consider are, other things to consider are age over 85. Other things to consider are age over 85 a resuscitation that goes on for more than 30 minutes, or other indicators of a long resuscitation time without ROSC, like severe acidosis and a really high lactate. And finally, if the patient's an overdose patient or a drowning patient, those aren't going to be the kind of patients that we want to send for PCI. Cold brains, unmoved, untouched, Now, what about cooling the patient? With the targeted temperature trial from New England Journal of Medicine in 2013 on post-arrest cooling, suggesting that cooling to 36 degrees is as good as cooling to 33 degrees, what do the guidelines say about what we should be aiming for in terms of cooling and which patients should be cooled? So the guidelines reinforce as well. There's an American Heart statement. Uh, it's a scientific statement. It just came out. So the scientific statement from the American Heart, as well as the guidelines, reinforce the need for targeted temperature management, which, as defined in Nielsen's trial, the one you were referring to in the New England, it was active temperature management with the use of neuroleptics, sedation, and an active cooling intervention. And it's just the target temperature was different between the control and the treatment group. So the recommendations right now are to use targeted temperature management across the board, post-arrest patients, and you choose the target. It can be 32, 33, 34, 35, or 36. You choose. Okay. So this is, I just want to clarify here, this is across the board for every post-arrest patient that you get ROSC. Yeah, the, the contraindications would be there are some relative contraindications, like pregnancy is a relative contraindication, although if you ask me personally, I would cool. There are case series that the baby and the mom do better. So and another relative contraindication is an intracranial uh, event and hemorrhage. So if, if the patient's bleeding from some sort of bleeding disorder or coagulation abnormality or has an intracranial event, you may not want to cool. 
but those are relative contraindications. And in the clinical trials, they were excluded. So you really wouldn't have a, a lot to fall back on because all those patients were excluded in the, both the TTM trial and the two smaller RCTs that prompted the use of therapeutic hypothermia in the first place. Ah, the, the ever important knowing your exclusion criteria. Mm-hmm. Okay. <laughs> what happens in medicine is it takes physicians and healthcare providers a long time to adopt something. It takes them a relative mini second to de-adopt something. So when the TTM trial came out, a lot of physicians interpreted that New England paper as cooling doesn't work. When in fact, that wasn't the control arm. The control arm was active TTM at 36 degrees. And so we have seen a trend over time in our data set of de-adoption, rapid de-adoption of therapeutic hypothermia or targeted temperature management. And what is comes out in these guidelines and in that statement is a reinforcement that that would be inappropriate care. Okay. So we need to cool everybody post-arrest. So get those ice packs in the <laughs> groins and under the axilla as, as soon as you've got Roski. Okay. What the guidelines actually came out, uh, they also talked about pre-hospital cooling, um, and which I think is important since you mentioned bags. So there was the KIM trial came out at the same time as the Nielsen trial in 2013, actually at the same American Heart Meeting. And it was released, it was a randomized control trial where post, immediately post-ROSC, the Seattle Med- medics randomized patients to pre-hospital cooling with a rapid infusion of two liters of cold saline versus standard of care and in-hospital cooling. And that trial showed no difference, uh, and it was powered to find a reasonable difference. And what it also showed was an increased rate of congestive heart failure and an increased rate of re-arrest in the pre-hospital cooled group. And so the guidelines and the scientific statement from the American Heart specifically says that pre-hospital cooling are large amounts of cold saline given rapidly, immediately after ROSC, may be harmful. And the reason I clarify that is because there's an ongoing large randomized control trial actually in Ontario where we're pre- we are randomizing patients to pre-hospital cooling and they are getting saline. But we're giving less saline, about one liter, and it's about 750 mils, and we're waiting 10 minutes after Ross, give the chance for that heart to quieten down, calm down. And we don't see these rates of congestive heart failure or re-arrest. And we've been through various data safety monitoring board looks at the data. So, you know, I think it's important that we don't jump from the Kim study and from the consensus science and say nobody should be pre-hospital cooling. The American Heart Statement clearly says rapid, large infusions given immediately after ROSC may be harmful. So targeted temperature management should be initiated for all post-arrest patients who achieve ROSC. And it's up to your intensivist to cool to 32 degrees or 36 degrees or anywhere in between. The important point being, as Nike says, just do it. You see, the control arm in the TTM trial still actively cooled patients, just not to the same degree as the 32-degree arm. 
In terms of when to start cooling, Dr. Morrison, based on a pre-hospital RCT in 2013, recommends to wait a few minutes after ROSC to let the heart settle and then start cooled IV saline, but not in huge boluses. Remember that the relative contraindications, because they were excluded in these clinical trials, are an intracranial event, hemorrhage, or pregnancy. Next, we're going to go on to the case resolution. Our point-of-care ultrasound shows that the patient had poor LV contractility, the cath lab was activated, the patient went to the cath lab, and they found a lesion, they fixed the lesion, and the patient ended up doing well, was in hospital for a few weeks, and ended up walking out of the hospital. (laughs) Strikingly interesting, because... Women have a higher in-hospital mortality rate than men, and your case was a woman. Ah. Wow. <laughs> some data that we're looking at right now in the Toronto area, southern Ontario, we've looked at about six years of data of post-arrest patients. And in, interestingly, when women have a cardiac arrest versus men, women are in the wrong place at the wrong time. Nobody's watching, nobody witnesses, they don't have VF, nobody does bystander CPR, and yet women have a higher rate of ROSC and arrival alive in ED than the men do. But when they get to hospital, they um, have a higher in-hospital mortality rate than men. So in the end, there is no difference between gender in terms of outcome, except if you tease it apart, you can see these huge gender differences. So we interviewed caregivers, eMERGE docs, eMERGE nurses, ICU docs, ICU nurses, and paramedics. And we said, is there anything different you're doing with these women in hospital? What I mean, Do you think you're not giving them access to PCI or access to targeted temperature management? Are you selectively not treating the women? Of course, everybody answered, no way, we're giving everyone equivalent care. But in fact... What came out of it, a thematic discussion, was that when men have their cardiac arrest, their wife is by the bedside advocating or their partner is by the bedside advocating on their behalf. Whereas when a woman has a cardiac arrest, her husband's already predated her in death. She's alone. She's surrounded by her loving children or friends, colleagues that still associate with her. And they're saying, listen, she never really was the same since her husband died. Um, just give her comfort measures and let her go. Wow, interesting. So that it certainly uh, it expands. It's resuscitation is more than just following guidelines. It's also sort of considering all the other issues that surround and influence our care and how we give it. It was interesting when we teased it apart. Uh, th- that that thematic response was true because. Many women had withdrawal of life-sustaining therapy before 72 hours, which is guideline-driven. You're supposed to wait. Once you cool these brains, you're supposed to wait a full 72 hours and then do more than one neuroprognostic test. And in fact, the women had a very high rate of withdrawal of life-sustaining therapy prior to 72 hours, which sort of explains exactly what the nurses and the docs had observed. Wow. So not only do women make 70 cents on the dollar compared to men out there, (laughs) they're not getting the best post-resuscitative care. Or somebody's making decisions that don't allow the the physician to give good post-arrest care. All right. So I really encourage everyone out there to go and read the 
2015 guidelines themselves and come to your own conclusions about how you're going to apply them to practice. Dr. Lin and Dr. Morrison, before we go, I just want to pick your brains a little bit about what you think the future of research in cardiac arrest care is going to be all about. Uh, What do you see as how we're going to be resuscitating patients in five years or 10 years? Yeah, so I think the future is actually very exciting. I think we're going to be moving towards a one-size-does-not-fit-all type of guideline where we need to have individualized care for individual patients. One of the major factors to to achieve that is the adoption of new technologies. So getting better monitoring uh, for these patients and performing goal-directed therapy so that we could individualize care for these patients. And I think that's that's the way of the future. I agree. And I think goal-directed individualized therapy is the way to go because it would answer all the questions, epinephrine, amiodarone, all those issues. And I also see a vision in the future that VF arrest, we don't stay in play. VF arrest, we convert and rush and we move quickly to get them into the hospital and to get them definitive angiography. Because even now in the ALPS trial, the refractive VF trial comparing amiodarone to lido to placebo, there are patients that have VF arrest who are young who are here in the city of Toronto, they're randomized and given amiodarone, lidocaine, or placebo. They continue in VF, and we give up on them. It just breaks my heart every time I read one of these ACRs where the base hospital physician has pronounced the patient dead, and they were in recurrent VF. As those patients are salvageable, they're just in the wrong place. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Lin. Thank you so much, Dr. Morrison. I learned an incredible amount in our, our recording session here. I think our listeners are gonna are gonna love this one. I'm hoping that next time when the 2020 guidelines come out, that we can meet again. Great. Thank you so much. Thank you, Anton. Cue the music. <laughs> <laughs> All right. As I promised at the beginning of this podcast, it's my pleasure to have Dr. Scott Weingart give us his take on all the stuff that we reviewed in the update of the ACLS guidelines when it comes to cardiac arrest. Dr. Weingart was kind enough to take some time to give us his input. So uh, welcome, Scott, back to EM Cases. Thanks so much, Anton. It's always a pleasure to be on the show. Awesome. So let's just jump right in. And I want to start first with talking about epinephrine. You know, we talked in the first episode to try and go for more of a goal-directed epinephrine therapy. We know that there's no long-term benefit outcomes for epinephrine, but we do know that it does increase the chances of ROSC. What's your take in terms of goal-directed use of epinephrine? We had mentioned using end-tidal CO2 and maybe that we need lower doses of epinephrine. What's, what's your take? How should we be dosing epinephrine in, this, in the cardiac arrest situation? Yeah, well, I'm not a big fan of the end-tidal CO2, and that, that's one of the reasons I reached out, is um, on my podcast, you folks had mentioned, uh, end-tidal was there, but it was there in the vein of a recommendation from an article 
published by the American Heart Association in 2013 by Meany, uh, as an alternative way of hemodynamic dosing of epi. The way I dose it, the way I think people in cardiac arrest centers should dose it, is based on arterial line diastolic blood pressure. And it really, it bears some understanding on what you're hoping to achieve with epi. Epi's only purpose is to increase the perfusion pressure to the heart and therefore get some perfusion into the coronaries and hopefully, therefore, generate a rhythm you could shock the patient out of or augment your defibrillations in a patient in ventricular fibrillation by increased coronary perfusion. I'm going to titrate my epinephrine to get the effect the drug is capable of giving me, which is increased afterload through alpha-1 and alpha-2 to perfuse the coronaries. And I think the best way of dosing it is to directly look at uh, a value that's going to represent that, and that's the diastolic blood pressure during compressions. For the practicalities of it, Scott, in a community hospital, patient comes in, chest compressions are ongoing, you're getting your first dose of epi ready. Uh, getting an art line in there during chest compressions is a pretty challenging thing, especially if you only have one or two providers running the resuscitation. Um, the reason why we didn't mention it in part one was because of this impracticality. Sure, if you've got a, a huge team and you got someone dedicated right there to put in an art line and can do it really fast, then yeah, it makes sense that you could utilize that to help titrate your epi. Do you have any tips on how to get that art line in fast? It just seems to me that the end title CO2 is something that's a lot easier to go by. Well, that, and that brings up the second reason I really wanted to discuss this. And this is where it gets controversial. In fact, all of my comments are going to be somewhat controversial. Um, but I don't think patients in cardiac arrest should be going to emergency departments that are small or not capable of providing an insanely advanced level of care, uh, probably all the way down to the ability to provide eCPR or ECMO CPR. I don't know what we're achieving by transporting a patient from the field with incredible pre-hospital providers to a community ED. Uh, they should either work that patient in the field or instead transfer somewhere that's going to be providing more than they're capable of providing in the pre-hospital realm. And I think that sh probably should be at advanced cardiac arrest centers. I see. In Canada, as far as I know, we don't have any advanced cardiac arrest centers. In the States, is that something that's popular? It's not popular uh, because hospitals don't want to give up yet another capability. They're fed up with stroke centers, calf centers, and all trauma centers. But in this disease state in particular, I think it needs to happen. It needs to happen in the States. It needs to happen in Canada. And we do have centers that are capable of providing ECMO CPR. That designation hasn't been official in most pre-hospital systems. The only one I know of is Australia, where the uh, work from Steve Bernard Center, uh, and, and that's where the CHEER trial came from. Uh, they're the only ones I know who are deliberately transferring to a very advanced center. But I think this is the future. The HA and uh, ILCOR is talking about this, and it's only political that I think we're not doing it already. Patients should go to a center capable of providing a more advanced level of care than EMS is capable of providing. And the reason why you say end-title CO2 isn't such a great marker for goal-directed epinephrine is why? Because we have no evidence for it of any significance. Uh, even the uh, diastolic blood pressure is not great evidence. At least we have one human trial by Norm Paradis, but uh, I don't have enough literature to say end-title CO2 is the way to go at this stage of the game. 
Okay, so suffice to say that if we can get these centers that are dedicated to high-level cardiac arrest care, that's probably the best place for a patient to be. Until then, either you have a choice of giving no epi or giving what the guidelines say, the one milligram every three to five minutes, or if you can get an art line in quickly, then you can go with dose-adjusted epinephrine. All right, let's move on to um, minimizing pauses in chest compressions. We had emphasized that one of the goals in cardiac arrest care should be to minimize any pause in high-quality chest compressions. So Dr. Morrison had suggested foregoing any pulse checks as they take a long time and there's poor accuracy in doing manual pulse checks and instead doing continuous chest compressions until there's more overt signs of ROSC like the patient waking up. How do you suggest that we minimize pauses in chest compressions? Well, that that's a whole, you know, extensive conversation. What I can comment on is that this concept that suddenly when the patient gets a pulse back, they're going to show you signs that are overt, they're going to wake up, they're going to make respiratory efforts is been a absolutely non-event in every single cardiac arrest I've got in Roscon in the ED. Now, maybe if you have a patient down for 30 seconds in V-fib and you shock them and you keep doing compressions and they wake up, uh, that was a fine strategy for the first five minutes post-arrest. Uh, I don't see patients do that. They get their pulse back, their heart starts beating, uh, they are comatose. They stay comatose, perhaps for days or weeks. They are not showing me any overt, easily apparent signs during chest compression that they've got in ROSC. And I'll be doing CPR forever on these patients when they've already had a beating heart and they are generating their own circulation. So I'm not sure how that would ever work in an in-hospital environment. Assuming that we can't bank on the patient actually waking up to know that they've achieved ROSC and that at the same time we want to minimize pulse checks, how do you suggest that we do minimize pulse checks? Yeah, so part one, and this has been in the ACLS guidelines forever, but it just gets routinely ignored by most people, is uh, you check a rhythm during your stops between compressions. And only if the rhythm has any potential to be generating a actual uh, circulation, i.e. there's an organized rhythm, do you do a pulse check. So just doing that would eliminate most of the extensive pauses. Uh, so you should really be looking for, oh, that could be sinus. Now I'll do a pulse check. Uh, and, and that will take care of most of it because if they're flatline or they're still in V-fib, then checking a pulse probably not so clever. Uh, if you have an art line, then the pulse checks take two seconds uh, because you immediately know because you look up at the screen. So that's another way to minimize it. But again, it bears all the same problems of getting an arterial line. Maybe we should be concentrating then on, on getting that arterial line. And even, even in a community hospital, getting one of your team members dedicated to getting that art line in, it can help uh, in multiple ways. Well, one other thing is you could throw on a linear probe over the patient's femoral vasculature and actually, while they're doing compressions, make sure you're seeing the femoral artery. And then when they, when they stop and you're looking up at the rhythm, the person looking at the ultrasound screen will know instantly whether or not there is a pulse in that femoral artery without having to do the ridiculous feeling around. Absolutely. So maybe a combination, if you have enough people, a combination of manual and ultrasound uh, pulse checks and we had mentioned in part one that uh, you should have the probe and or your hand on the pulse while compressions are being done so that when the compressions stop, 
you can get that pulse right away instead of fumbling around. Well, that was on my list. So it's really important people understand this. The pulse you'll feel during compressions is more likely to be over the vein than the artery, uh, just due to backflow. So you could be very badly surprised uh, when you say that the patient doesn't have the pulse because where your hands are is actually over the femoral vein. This is why I say, uh, A, we should probably get rid of manual pulse checks entirely, and B, the ultrasound in transverse over that vessel will allow you to see both the vein and the artery and know for sure that whether or not you're seeing an arterial pulse. All right. What about um, persistent ventricular fibrillation? You know, when it comes to double defibrillation for refractory V-feb, uh, are you a supporter despite the lack of good evidence that it really works? So ventricular storm, i.e. Uh, a ventricular fibrillation or VTAC without a pulse that just will not convert no matter what you do is a very small subset of patients. And in those, you really have to throw the kitchen sink at them. Really, the answer probably should be to take them to the cath lab on mechanical CPR and open up the vessel, as uh, they talked about in part two. But if you can't do that, then you try whatever you can. And double defib is certainly one of the things I'll be trying. And as far as I know, all the studies did not subset down to this really tiny little group of persistent refractory V-fib. So I'm certainly going to try that. I'm certainly going to try Esmolol in those patients if the double defib doesn't work. Hmm, Esmolol. So what's the evidence there for Esmolol in persistent V-fib? So we have a case series now, and this has been talked about by the EP guys and the resuscitation folks for a long time, that it's probably excess beta stimulation that's leading them into the ventricular storm in many cases. And an uh, attempt to eliminate some of that sympathetic surge may be a way of gaining success. And that case series, which I believe was published out of Hennepin, uh, demonstrates that in a bunch of patients. Obviously not an RCT, not high-level evidence. All righty. And what about uh, indications for PCI post-arrest? You had mentioned that in patients with persistent V-fib, we should be sticking a mechanical CPR machine on them and getting them to PCI, which was mentioned by Dr. Morrison as well. Um, you know, the guidelines recommend sending all patients post VF arrest and those with STEMI on their ECG for immediate PCI, but it's more controversial who to send for PCI for the rest of the cardiac arrest patients that achieve ROSC. So which patients do you think we should be sending for immediate PCI after we've got their return of spontaneous circulation? Well, let's unpack that because there's a bunch of good stuff you just mentioned. First off, mechanical CPR. Uh, all the studies looking at this were looking at it in a pre-hospital environment. And the reason we think there was not any benefit for mechanical CPR, though on its face it looks like there should be, is that a lot of those patients were uh, delaying their first shock to get them out of V-fib to mess around with the mechanical device. And that probably balanced any benefits from better CPR. Mm -hmm. Different scenario, once they get to the hospital, those patients have been in persistent arrest. They have been uh, receiving ACLS for a good period of time. And I think if we did the trial of randomizing patients, once they get to your ED, to mechanical versus not mechanical CPR, the difference uh, would be seen in that trial. At least that's my supposition. You can't take these patients to the lab for intra-arrest without a mechanical device. It's just too arduous to do hand CPR while you're trying to open up their vessel. So that's another reason you want mechanical CPR. And uh, I think any patient you cannot get out of V-fib, V-tac, certainly should either go to the lab on mechanical CPR or preferentially get ECMO and then go to the lab. But the question you were asking at the end is, what about the patients who have ROSC? Who should go? 
Well, obviously, if you have no other etiology except for the STEMI sitting on your EKG, and that STEMI should persist after the first couple minutes of ROSC because the first EKG has a tendency to lie and look really horrible and then gets better. But if like five minutes afterwards you get an EKG and there's a STEMI, that patient should go. That's easy. What about the Mm -hmm. patients who don't have the STEMI? Should they go? Well, I think if you don't have another reason and you don't have a better story for another reason besides a primary coronary event, they should go with some rapidity. Does it have to be in the first 90 minutes? Uh, Probably not. We don't have great evidence for any of this, and we certainly don't have great evidence that it has to be in the first 90 minutes. But I think at some point early on in these patients' course, if you don't have another reason for an out-of-hospital rest, they probably should go to the lab. All right. And in terms of... um in terms of the practicalities of placing that mechanical CPR machine on the patient in the ED, do you have any experience and tips and tricks about how to, again, minimize the pause and chest compressions to get that machine on? Yeah, you got to train like a pit crew. And there's numerous videos, a uh, bunch by the pre-hospital folks on pit crew approach to this. Uh, I think you could search for that on YouTube and find at least three videos that demonstrate it beautifully. You got to train your people to minimize compression pauses. Uh, so basically what you wind up doing is during one of the rhythm checks, uh, when you're going to be pausing anyway, uh, everyone on the team is coordinated to get that patient rolled, put the under part of the mechanical device underneath them and then continue compressions while you're arranging the top part. And then basically the pause could be eliminated to just the pause of a rhythm check itself and, uh, or maybe a tiny bit longer than that. And that's really what you need to do. And you should screen these patients when they first come in before you think about uh, putting on the device to see if they are in a shockable rhythm because the shock is far more important than switching over to mechanical CPR. Mm-hmm. Let's talk a little bit about airway. The guidelines say that we don't really need to get a secure airway until about six minutes in, and there's no good evidence that an endotracheal tube versus a supraglottic airway versus BVM have any advantage over one another. What's your advice when it comes to securing the airway? When should we be securing the airway? How should we be securing the airway? And how should we be minimizing pauses in chest compression so that we can get a good airway in a timely manner? Yeah, so great question. And I have no problem with whatever you do in the first six minutes because I'm not seeing those patients. And I think it's very appropriate for pre-hospital folks to bag the patient or even use apneic oxygenation for the first six minutes. By the time they get to me, they've been way longer than six minutes into the code. If a patient comes in still receiving BVM ventilation, I, I really don't want to continue that because it requires an insane degree of concentration to do it well. And the absence of evidence that that's worse is because the studies are really tough to do to show that BVM ventilation for prolonged times during a code are worse. Uh, I I think it's not a elegant way of handling these patients once they get to the ED. What's elegant? Throw in an LMA. Why not? It's super easy. There's no reason to stop compressions, and I think it's better than holding a good mass seal. At some point during the code, I want to put an ET tube down there. We do it without any interruption. The airway person's not allowed to interrupt compressions. They have no right. Only the person at the foot of the bed is, and they know, because this is the way we train people, they're not allowed to call for the compressions to stop. So they're going to use some form of video laryngoscopy, and if it's a direct geometry blade, they're going to use a bougie because that's so much easier to slip through the cords while compressions are going on, and they're going to get the patient intubated without any delay or stopping of compression. All right, and Dr. Weingart, 
In terms of the future of cardiac arrest care, we had already mentioned advanced cardiac arrest resus centers, and we had mentioned the use of eCPR or ECMO CPR. Uh, what else do you think is going to be happening in terms of future research and the way we take care of these patients? Yeah. Uh, well, I, I think the first thing that has to change in the research in order for all this to work is we need to start subsetting out the patients who are too young to die, the patients who are viable, who have uh, every uh, reason for you to give every possible aggressive measure from the patients who probably should not have received cardiac arrest resuscitation, but are just because that's the baseline and we have to stick with it unless someone said differently. And until we start subsetting those patients out, it's going to be really tough to do any of this research. The other major change I'd like to see, I don't know if it's going to happen, it's politically fraught, is uh, for a while, pre-hospital resuscitation has been, we might as well stay on scene and resuscitate for an extended period of time because there's nothing the ED has to offer that we can't. And that's been true for many years. They were right to say that in the pre-hospital realm. It's not true anymore. And what I'd like to see is ECMO-eligible patients meaning they're relatively young, less than 75, less than 65 in some places, uh, especially if their primary rhythm was V-fib or V-tac, those patients should be brought to the hospital as quick as humanly possible. And uh, in general, uh, that means they shouldn't be spending more than six, 10 minutes on scene before they start their transport. This is going to be a huge paradigm shift. It's going to piss off a lot of people. I think it's the right thing to do for the patients if you could take them to a cardiac arrest center after that very brief time in the field. All right. Any other uh, comments about uh, part one and part two of the update in the ACLS guidelines? No, just that I think it was both episodes were fantastic. Save me from having to do the podcast because I'm just going to refer my listeners to your work, Anton. Uh, and I could just say job exceedingly well done. All right. Thanks so much, Dr. Weingart. I hope to see you at the uh, teaching course in a couple of weeks in New York. And next time around, uh, maybe we'll have you and Dr. Morrison go head to head. All right. I'm, I'm ready for it. <laughs> All right. Take care. Well, that almost wraps it up for our 2015 update in ACLS and cardiac arrest controversies. Before we go, I just want to give you the golden nuggets from part two. First, antiarrhythmics. Amiodarone is still in the guidelines for resistant V-fib, and post-arrest, it's reasonable to continue lidocaine if you used it intra-arrest. Then there's this new approach to PEA. Consider the simplified newer approach using the QRS width and POCUS to help you through the differential diagnosis. We'll have a beautiful algorithm image on the website for you to go over to make it stick. In terms of when to terminate resuscitation, the factors that should trigger you to resuscitate longer are if the patient had a shockable rhythm or any ROSC at any time or was a witness arrest. And the factors that should lead you toward thinking about terminating the resuscitation include multiple comorbidities and an end tidal CO2 of less than 10 after 20 minutes of high quality CPR. Now, the same factors should be taken into account when deciding whether or not to send the patient without VF or STEMI for emergency PCI. Regardless, if you're convinced that the patient arrested because of a sudden cardiac event with no other explanation, you should probably activate the cath lab. And finally, all patients should be cooled post-arrest to a temperature of your intensivist choice 
but remember not to bolus too much fluid. Some experts suggest starting vasopressors soon after ROS to target a MAP of 65 to avoid fluid overload in patients with bad hearts. And for this month's quote of the month, we'll have one by Samuel Shem. At a cardiac arrest, the first procedure is to take your own pulse. And before we go, I just want to remind you that registration for the first ever EM Cases course that'll take place on February 6th in Toronto with all your favorite EM Cases guest experts opens on November 17th. Now there's only 45 spots, so be sure to sign up on the 17th or soon thereafter. You'll also get the early bird discount at that time. And finally, I'm excited to announce a new EM Cases collaboration, Crit Cases. Mike Betzner, who runs the Air Ambulance STARS program out of Calgary. It'll be a mind-melting series of blogs of the very best critical care cases designed specifically to give you pearls and pitfalls that'll save you and your critically ill patients. So until next time, take it easy.
my days are spent too dry And I feel that my love it just can't hide Oh baby, I'd walk for a hundred miles to your side 